Oh my goodness. <laughs> it is the day after Christmas. And I'm walking through the woods. It's 20 degrees. And there's like four inches of snow on the ground. This is crazy. I live in East Tennessee. Like we never, we rarely get snow. And hardly ever this much snow. Ah, oh, it's crazy. And I usually record these at like six in the morning but it was 12 degrees at six this morning i was not gonna go out so for those who i know catch it early my apologies i i'm out now when it's eight degrees warmer which is 20 but hey either way it's good to be out it's beautiful i'm bundled up so we're gonna do this so last sunday I went to church with my wife's parents. Um, they were having a Jesus birthday celebration and they wanted our kids there. Our kids go with them every once in a while. So we went, they went, we all went. Good family time together. And the, the sermon, um, I don't remember the title of the sermon, but in the sermon the pastor preached about the swaddling clothes of Jesus. So that kind of spurred this conversation that I want to have today, that I want to think about and that conversation is about this broken body. And I know it's like we're, this is the season to celebrate Jesus' birth. What does that have to do with Jesus' death? That's a reference to Jesus' death, right? The, the, the Last Supper was Jesus saying, Take, this is my body, broken for many. What about this broken body? And what does that have to do with the Christmas story and Jesus' birth? That's what I want to talk about today. This is the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori, and woo, I'm out here. Oh my gosh, it is a winter wonderland. But man, ah, I'm glad to be out here with you guys, and I'm glad that you're joining me. So what about this broken body? What does it even have to do with Christmas? Well, I'll, I'll finish that story. Like in that sermon last Sunday, the pastor talked about this idea of swaddling clothes. Jesus, when he was born, if you don't know the story, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. That's part of the Christmas story. Well, uh, the point of his message is that sometimes we read details in the Gospels. And this is, you know, coming from ancient culture, 2,000 years old. And we just, you know, we think, yeah, you wrap, you swaddle babies. We swaddle babies. My wife and I were foster parents. And we had what's called NAS babies, neonatal abstinence syndrome, babies that were born drug exposed. And swaddling for them was so comforting. Swaddling for any baby is super comforting because it reproduces the environment of the womb where the baby is just so one the baby is just really tucked tightly in the small space and just cuddled and confined and two then you swaddle them and you hold them close to your chest because they can feel your heart because that's how that's how they live the first nine months of their lives swaddled in the womb and close to the warmth and the heartbeat of the body so well, we might read that story and be like yeah of course you swaddle babies not in the first century in the first century, one kind of baby was typically swaddled. A royal baby. The, the children of royalty were swaddled. It was a sign that you were born into a royal family. You were swaddled in a royal garment. Nobody else was swaddled in that time. But Jesus was swaddled. And this, this sermon 
illustrated this idea. There were two reasons Jesus may have been swaddled. Two dominant theories, which are really based in the Jewish culture at that time. One, most Jewish men would carry a linen around their belts. Because it was part of their tradition that if they ever came upon someone that was dead on the road, you know, like it was just, those times could be treacherous when you were traveling. You could get jumped on the road and killed. Jewish culture said that you needed to swaddle that dead body and bury it. It was the proper way to deal with a dead body. That was what God desired. So most Jewish men would carry this long linen called a swaddling cloth around their waist. If they came across a dead person, they would perform the proper rite of burial. So one of the theories is that Joseph, when Jesus was born, Joseph had this swaddling linen, which was a preparation for death, that he swaddled Jesus with to keep him warm in the manger. Right? The second is that there may have been some swaddling linens already there in the manger. The manger was in a basically a kind of barn. And when certain lambs were born, they were set apart for sacrifice. Their legs were swaddled so that they could be a lamb without blemish or spot. They were kept, their legs were swaddled so they couldn't run around, break their legs or get injured or anything. So they were swaddled so they were basically, until they were sacrificed, would just kind of be immobilized. And so the theory is either one of those swaddling linens could have been used to swaddle Jesus as a baby, but both were used to prepare a body for death. Isn't that amazing? So like, even from Jesus' very birth, holy cow, I'm crossing the path. These branches are so weighed down by the snow because it was raining before. And so then the snow came and it was so damp, it clung to the branches. And there's like, I have like about two feet of clearance here. You can probably hear me. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like this path is, anyway. (laughs) So either way, Jesus would have been swaddled with linens that were intended to prepare a body for death. So even from Jesus' very birth, the whole idea is that even from his birth, he was born to die. His body was born to be broken as a sacrifice for the sins of all people. Now, I'm a contemplative. I don't believe in the traditional idea of that sacrifice. It's called non-substitutionary atonement. Or that's called substitutionary atonement theory, and I believe in non-substitutionary atonement. Like, Jesus didn't come to affirm the idea of sacrificing life to God in order to appease God. Like, I don't believe in that. But I still believe in the significance of Jesus' death. But I believe in it in a different way. Like, what does it mean that Jesus had to die? It's clear that he had to die. He was prepared to die from from the beginning of his human life. But the question really is, what did Jesus come to save us from? Was this a transaction where God required a death in order to appease God's sense of righteousness? What was Jesus truly dying to save us from? What is the brokenness of sin? That's the question. Well, from the beginning of the story of the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's clear what the root of our brokenness is. It's our broken relationship with God. Right? It's not that we screwed up a law or got a rule wrong. It wasn't a perfunctory or transactional or legal issue. Like, oh, I have these rules. You broke a rule. Now the consequence of that rule is X, Y, or Z. And so we've got, a, we've got this covenant and we've got to 
this transactional thing has to transpire. It's just a formality, right? Is that what it was about? God has these formal rules and it's a formality that those rules have to be kept. And God's like, well, you know, I don't even like this rule myself, <laughs> you know, but hey, rules are rules, right? I'm bound by my own rules just like you. We got to keep, no, is, was that what it was about? Was it about a rule and a broken rule? Or was it about a broken relationship? The story of the Judeo-Christian tradition as put forth in the Judeo-Christian Bible is it's about broken relationship. Like God just wanted, God created this whole world because God wanted to be in relationship with us. That relationship was broken and Jesus came to set that broken relationship right. It's not about rules or broken rules and like we have to do these form, the, the formality of just the proper appeasement of God or the proper way to rectify this broken rule. Whoa, I just stepped in. It's 20 degrees and snowy, but I'm still stepping in mud. <sighs> Crazy. Some of these trails get, the water just sets in these low spots and creates these muddy bog areas. Anyway, I'm on the trail. So like... It was a broken relationship, right? So Jesus, Jesus' whole life and death, which is clear that he was, that was the main purpose he came for. Like, it wasn't about performing a perfunctory legal requirement. It was about Jesus restoring us back to a proper relationship with God. So... The problem of sin really is the problem of a broken relationship and all the consequences of that broken relationship. And Jesus' life and death was meant to remedy the problem of that broken relationship and the problems created by that broken relationship. Wow, I picked the wrong path today. Oh my gosh. Listen to this. Hear the cracking ice? Crazy. Oh my gosh. I'm having to to hike it through the woods off the trail because the trail is just, yeah, there's this large iced over puddle. It's probably a foot deep. Anyway, sorry for <laughs> all this trail talk. But so, uh, broken relationship, right? The consequences, sin is the consequences of that broken relationship. The actual brokenness of the relationship and the consequences of that broken relationship. That's what sin is about. Uh, I'm glad I have waterproof snow boots on, but I'm really having trouble getting through this path. All right. So, like, that's why Jesus lived. He, Jesus lived to show us what it's like to live in proper relationship with God. And he died as a protest to the brokenness of the power systems which live in opposition to God. What that means is that Jesus... Jesus... Jesus, you know, Jesus' literal death of his physical body isn't really the most significant thing, thing about his death. The significant thing about his suffering as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world is that he came to show us how to live in a way that would remove us from the consequences of that sinful life. How to live in, how to restore the relationship with God that's been broken. But here's the, here's the real reason why he had to suffer. Because broken relationships cause suffering. And Jesus showed us a path. He actually said that he wasn't going to deliver us from the evil of the world, but he would protect us and give us strength in the midst of it. He actually calls us to suffer the way he suffered. 
the, you know, this is the whole metaphor of taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him. We are crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. And the, like, we, we die with Christ, and we are resurrected with Christ in this new life. Well, what is the epitome of that new life? Is it that this rule was, this rule, broken rule was resolved, or is it that we now come to live in a closer proximity to God? And that's the actual problem anyway. Jesus came to show us how to, how, how to restore this broken relationship. And the consequences of that broken relationship also get healed as we draw closer to God. But the point is that to do that, Jesus had to openly accept the suffering inherent in that in that in that path, right? Because suffering is inherent when relationships are broken. Dysfunctional relationships create pain. And so, like the idea that God is like pissed off and removed and mad because we're broken and, and there has to be this appeasement is different than like God sees that we're broken and wants to heal our brokenness and resolve it and so what, what to do that sorry I've got snow all over my recording device to do that God sent Jesus to show us a different way to live to restore our relationship back to God and then like, kind of the initial restoration of that relationship then begins to walk us back out of the brokenness that's created as a consequence of the broken relationship. But Jesus was, was described, even before the New Testament, as a man of sorrows. Like, this whole idea that Jesus had to suffer to bring about that restoration is inherent. And so I want to first go to... Isaiah, the Old Testament. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is from Isaiah 53. It starts in chapter 2. I'm not going to... There's like... This is the whole chapter. This is about what the, who the Messiah would be. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we thought him punished by God and that God had struck him and afflicted him but he was pierced by our sins and transgressions he was cr crushed for our iniquities the punishment that was that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed by I'm skipping out of verse 8 by oppression and judgment he was taken away Why was Jesus a man of suffering? And why is suffering essential to his path? Why is it that he... Like, how did he bear our suffering? What does that all mean? Was it just a transaction to appease a God who is all about the rules? Or is it a God who wants to restore us to a right relationship and suffers the consequences of that process? Like, let's imagine it this way. I think in terms of relationship, this is just the only way it really makes sense, and it makes the most sense. Let's just think about a dysfunctional person, a broken person, a hurting person. You know the phrase, hurting people hurt people. Let's just say you are a healthy person, truly healthy, 
you know how to love people well, you're a kind, compassionate person, and you want to walk with a broken, hurting person, what do you think the consequence is going to be? You're a healthy person. You want to walk with an unhealthy person to show them how to be a healthy person. What do you think the consequences are going to be for you? You're going to get hurt. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer a lot. And you're going to, like, the choice to walk with that person. What I mean when I say walk with them, I mean share life with them. I mean share your heart. I mean open your heart to them in love and love them unconditionally, which is only what true love is. Like, no matter what they do to you, no matter how they treat you, no matter how in their brokenness and their hurting, how they treat you, because broken people break other people and hurting people hurt other people but if you're a healthy person and you actually have the strength to love hurting people guess what the defining quality of that kind of path is it's suffering you are going to have to suffer you're going to be a person of suffering if you're going to suffer through the brokenness of hurting people in order to love them back to health that is the best picture of why Jesus was born to suffer and chose to suffer. He chose to suffer so that he could walk with us and show us how to walk on a path back to God. Because in suffering is inherent in the process. You cannot walk with broken people, hurting people, and not get hurt by those very same people you're trying to love. And the very nature of love is opening your heart to people who are more apt to hurt you than not because what do they know they only they're hurting they've been hurt they only really know how to hurt because their idea of a relationship is so dysfunctional and so broken now, only a person who really has the strength of unconditional open-hearted love can walk with hurting people long enough to see them transformed by the example of that whole and healthy person back into a healthy person themselves so like suffering is inherent in this process. God is, this is not arbitrary suffering because God has some rules and those rules demand suffering. This is just the natural consequence of broken relationships. And God, or Jesus, walking with broken people and walking them back to health. Suffering is inherent in the process. There's this one verse. Um, I've got gloves on, so I'm going to try not to, so, you know, I'm messing with my phone screen as well. And... I, sometimes I just hit things wrong, so hopefully I don't like pause the recording or we'll see what happens. Here we go. This is in Revelation. Revelation mentions three times that Jesus Jesus had this appearance. Like John, uh, the Apostle John, sees this revelation. He sees into heaven. He sees into the future. And he sees Jesus three different times as a lamb who was slain. As like, he's, like Jesus appears as a lamb with with a wound. Like a death wound, really, pretty much. And so this, is, this particular passage is in Revelation chapter 13. And it says, He saw the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Like here John sees Jesus again. And Jesus is pictured as a Lamb who was slain. But in this one particular verse, it depicts Jesus as a Lamb. And it provides this other extra detail. That He was slain from the foundation of the world it's is that interesting that that kind of struck me like um and in my theological training i was often taught that what that meant is that jesus sacrifice which took place in 
zero or 30, 30 BC, 33 BC, maybe. Like it just counts all the way back to the beginning of creation. That was the, that's kind of the dominant understanding of this particular verse. Well, it just means, it's kind of like almost a metaphoric, like Jesus' sacrifice goes all the way back to the first humans, covers over them, and then covers, you know, like it goes, it, the, the transaction works backwards and forwards. That's the understanding I was taught. And, but that's in terms of a transactional substitutionary atonement idea that Jesus had to pay God off so that God's no longer pissed off and so that we can get into heaven. But if, if the center point isn't rules, broken rules, and the consequences of broken rules, if it's broken relationship and the consequences of broken relationship, and it's about God trying to heal that broken relationship and walking with us and suffering the necessary consequences, then this idea that Jesus was slain from the foundation is this idea that Jesus has been suffering the wounds of sin on our behalf from the first sin of man, of humanity. That's a much different idea. Like, Jesus has been suffering the natural consequence of walking with broken people from the beginning because that's what it means. And Jesus' human life here and human death here was simply like the culmination in a way or the final like ultimate revelation of how God of who God is and how God wishes to act and and interact with us and walk with us like this is a God who would rather die and suffer himself than cause us to suffer God wants to alleviate our suffering and help us out of our situation not punish us because we're in it and so Jesus on the cross is this image of a God who suffers for our sake to alleviate our suffering. But the idea that suffering is inherently born out of what it means for a, a healthy, whole person to walk with unhealthy, broken people. And so Jesus, in a sense, allows himself to be broken by the process of walking with broken people. To suffer. To be a man who suffers our sinfulness, which is basically just the consequence of broken relationship and dysfunctional relationship, because Jesus wants to walk with us. That's a much different, that's a much different picture of God. It's a much different way of seeing this whole thing. Not as a transaction, because God just has to keep the right rules, and God is a rule-oriented, authoritative dictator or judge, but because God created us for a relationship and wants to restore that relationship and is willing to suffer however long it takes, however much, in order to restore that broken relationship. Like God's going to walk with us no matter what and suffer no matter what, suffer whatever it takes in order to walk us back to life. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? And so, like, Jesus makes these statements during his earthly life. And even, like, the idea of communion. I'm trying to, I'm going to go back. I've got a lot of scriptures. I may have a lot of trouble. <laughs> because my gloved hands won't, aren't working so well. I may have a, lot of, have a lot of trouble, but we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Here we go. This is actually from 1 Corinthians. I looked and looked for this verse in the... The gospel accounts of the Last Supper, where Jesus says, you know, where they do communion. It was actually the Seder meal. This was a common Jewish meal. It was actually looking back to the Passover meal. They were Every year they would celebrate 
God's liberation of their people from Egypt. And this was the Passover meal because God passed over the, na the nation of Israel when they were captives in Egypt when he took the first, firstborn of every household. So they, they, you know the story. They painted the blood of the lamb. They sacrificed the lamb and painted the blood on their doorpost. And that was the sign that the angel of death would pass over their households when it came, when he was out taking the firstborn of every family. The Passover, the Passover sacrifice. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. But he says, there's a new meaning here. I am now the Lamb of God. I am the sacrifice. My body is the bread. My blood is the wine. It's only in 1 Corinthians where Paul gives this extra little bit of meaning. Paul says, I received from the Lord. So he's saying, look, I have a specific revelation about this particular... Like, I wasn't there. I wasn't an apostle there in the Passover before Jesus was crucified. But... Jesus actually gave me this specific revelation. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus was on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's saying, remember my brokenness. Remember, like you're e it's like you're eating my body and drinking my blood. That sounds kind of gruesome. Gruesome and cannibalistic, right? Like, it's not literal, right? Like, okay, this is, I mean, this is over and over we come to this idea. Like, we take so much in the Bible literal. Jesus literally had to die, literally had to shed his blood. It's his literal blood that covers us and, and saves us from God's wrath. Right? Well, we don't literally eat Jesus' flesh and blood. In fact, the Catholics resolved this idea because they took it. So, the church has taken it so literal. The Catholics had to resolve this idea through through the through what they call transubstantiation. They actually teach that the bread turns into the flesh of Jesus after you eat it in your stomach, and in your stomach the wine turns into the blood of Jesus. Why? Because they like you cannot take this metaphorically. You have to either take it literally, metaphorically, or you're, you can't bounce back and say, well, Jesus literally means his blood and body, except when we're talking about his command for us to eat his body and blood, because we can't do that because his physical body and blood are, are earth. They're dust. They've rotted. So it's literal, but it's metaphoric. And we find this tension all the time in the Bible where... This is from the, even this very same passage or very same Christian idea. We, we take it both literally and metaphorically as it suits us. But there, it's indiscriminate. We just choose. This, this part can't be literal because we literally can't, can't eat his flesh. But he literally did mean his broken body and his blood was the thing that saved us. And here in another passage... Hey, buddy, a dog's coming up. There's someone coming down the trail. Which means I should pause it real quick. Like, there's another passage where Jesus actually talks about this idea. Like, like is it literal or is it not? Right? Like, what's the, what's the answer? Because really, most Christian denominations, traditions, say it's both. It's literally his broken body and blood that saves us from the wrath of God. But when we take communion, it's not literal. So is it or isn't it? Well, 
Jesus addresses this idea. Let me let me see. It's gonna take me a minute to find it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Um, this is in John chapter six. Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died." But this, meaning himself, is the bread that comes down out of heaven. And anyone who eats it will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he'll live forever. I will give for the life of the world also, or sorry, and the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. And the Jews like were like, what? Has he really he thinks we're going to eat his flesh? And Jesus then doubles down. He's like, I tell you truly. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's like doubling down. And you know what? I'm not reading everything word for word, but I'm skipping over. But like when he said that, he, he said it like the Pharisees and people were like, are you freaking crazy? This guy thinks we're going to eat his blood or, or eat his flesh. And then he doubles down and says, oh, yeah, I'm like, no, I'm, this is not just a, a quaint statement. I'm doubling down and like, no, you cannot get to heaven. You cannot know God unless you really eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then, you know what happened after that? It says, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is too hard of a statement. Who can hear it? And they turned away. And you know what Jesus then said to his in, in, inner circle of disciples? Because they were, they were also complaining. And he said, is this offensive to you? And then he explains it. He says, it is the Spirit, capital S, who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Wow, there you go. Jesus said, no, I'm not being literal here. It's not about my literal body being broken or being eaten. It's not about my literal blood being poured out and and drank. I'm talking, it's the Spirit who gives life. He, capital S. The Holy Spirit is the true essence of what gives life. Like, okay, here's what we could say. What was Jesus' true body that was broken by sin? What's our true body? Is it the physical body that is impermanent and passing i mean paul wrote the outward man is perishing daily but the inward or the outward man is perishing but the inward man is being renewed day by day he's saying the physical self is perishable and temporary not even the real you it's the inner person that's truly you so when jesus says eat my body drink my blood and he also says this is about spiritual things he's saying the spirit in me is who i truly am and the Spirit of God is who God truly is. And it's from that body which life comes. We, when we partake of the Spirit of God, that solves the problem of our broken relationship, which is what the Bible refers to as sin or the consequences of sin. It's not the literal physical body of Jesus. It's not even possible. It is a metaphor. Jesus says it's a metaphor. Even though he, like in front of the crowd in that one instance, and John says, no, no, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He turns back to the disciples and says, no, this, look, I'm talking in a metaphor here. 
It's not even about my physical body or blood at all because it's not about real physical blood. Or you're even, it's not even about your physical bodies. Those aren't going to be saved. What part of you is the true part of you and what part of you is truly saved? It's the inner man, not the outer man. It's the spirit, not the flesh. He says the flesh counts for nothing. Interesting. <laughs> so I've got I've met two people along the trails now. I'm kind of surprised. I thought I'd be the only person out here. Hey, there's brave people out here. Not just me. Um, he says the flesh doesn't mean anything. Stop thinking in terms of the flesh. My physical body being crucified means nothing. When you, like when he calls us to crucifixion, do you think we really literally need to get on a cross? What's he talking about? He's talking about suffering in a different way. Taking up your cross, dying to yourself, coming alive in God, getting in tune with God, restoring this broken relationship with God, this connection of our spirit to God's spirit. It's spirit to spirit. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no benefit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus paints this idea, this picture, uses this metaphor of his physical body, which was broken, his physical blood, which is poured out. But he said, that is just an external... Um, it's an external illustration of the true reality of everything that's going on here. I didn't have to die on the cross literally as a literal payment for God's literal rules about a broken rule and its consequences. It's about how we live separate from God that creates our brokenness. And it's about how I had to suffer in order to show the way back and how you will have to suffer in the same way. When Jesus invites us into this metaphoric symbolism of eating his body, of him break, like, what do we do when we break the bread, which represents his body? Like, if that represents his body, what's, what's that idea? Like, Jesus is saying, I'm available to every, it's just like, like, you, like your physical body needs to eat bread to stay alive. So every person needs to partake of me to really live, I'm like that bread because what? You break in the in the communion ceremony, you break a piece off of that bread and you eat it. It is symbolic of the fact that Jesus parses himself out to every single person and places his spirit in every single person. And that is the life of every person. It's like Jesus broken body represents Jesus choosing to walk with broken people put himself and herself the Holy Spirit like to be with us in our brokenness that's the suffering of the cross and the suffering of sin that Jesus took on himself and he then sent the Holy Spirit to do the same and he in John we t I talked about this in I think the last podcast or the last construction monk podcast um, he says it's like everything I have I give to the Spirit I'm sending the Spirit to you I'm leaving I'm sending the Spirit but it's just like I'm still here because like me, I and the Spirit and the Father, we're in this flow together. Like, it's not mine, it's the Spirit's, it's not the Spirit's, it's the Father's, it's not the Father's. It's like we are all participating in this suffering together.
in order to walk with you, we have given you a piece of us to partake of in order to experience good life. And here's the thing. It's a restoring of a connection to a God who is already here for us. It's not a transaction that appeases God enough so God will choose to walk with us. It's the fact that we've been severed in our connection, so we're walking in a way ignorant of the reality that God is here for us and wants us to live a certain way. The brokenness of our human experience and the human condition is simply that we live life in this view that we are alone and that God is not with us, and so we live in a reality of thinking the world is broken and living out of that brokenness because we're not living in tune with the God who is perfect love and who loves us perfectly and out of that perfect love shows us how to live, how to know we're perfectly loved and live out of a perfect love towards others. Like it's all about being in relationship with perfect love and the brokenness that transpires when that, not when that, the flow of that love is broken but when our, really our perception of that love is broken. Like, The disconnect is in us. It's on our side. It's not on God. God's not standing apart from us saying, well, when you get it right and you complete the salvation transaction, then I'll come to you and we can begin to walk. No, it's like I'm here. I'm already in you. Like I breathe you to life. The word phenuma means breath. It's the word we use for the Holy Spirit. Like you can't be alive without the Spirit in you. Like, I'm not separate from you. You have a kind of separation that creates a false self and creates a false world. And all of that is about your brokenness. Because you're walking in a way that you think you're... And living in a way separate from how I've called you to live in love. As one who is loved and who is valued. The fact that we think we are not loved... That God does not love us is the brokenness. And so a Christian religion says, yeah, God doesn't like you very much because you're a darn sinner. God can't stand you. And you've got to get right and you've got to make God like you again. Like, that is actually the broken story of our human experience. It's not God's God's healing story because that doesn't heal us. God's saying, no, that whole story is wrong. And that is actually the brokenness you live in because you think our relationship is broken. And out of that perception you actually live broken it's not a reality of brokenness it's a perception and that perception what you believe creates your reality but it's a false reality and it creates a false self and that's why jesus said deny yourself take up your cross and follow me if you lose your life you'll find it he's saying deny your false self take up your cross which means learn to put that false self to death the idea that you truly are not in relationship with god And you are broken and the world is broken. Which creates the true brokenness of yourself in the world. Put that self to death. It's an illusion. Treat it like an illusion. Get rid of it. And that's the journey back to healing and wholeness. Which actually is led by God coming to us and loving us. Not by getting God to come back and love us. But the fact that God is love already with us and in us and for us. So Jesus, this whole idea of Jesus' sacrifice and brokenness, broken body and flowing blood, is that God is always flowing to us and dividing or giving us parts of himself and herself, putting himself and herself in us. And that God chooses to live in brokenness with us so that we can 
learn to walk as God does and not be so broken. It's God's presence with us that is the only way we get out of this. God chooses to experience our brokenness open-heartedly, fully, in order to walk with us in our broken state, in order to walk us back to healing. That's the gospel story. That's the meaning of Jesus' human life being prepared from birth for death in order to bring us back to life. <laughs> it's crazy, huh? God has been suffering since the beginning. In a chosen state of walking with us in our brokenness. So that we would not be alone. So that we would know we're not alone. We're not abandoned by God. We didn't fall and God said, I'm out of here. What, what did God do when Adam and Eve fell? One, he said, I better not let them partake of the tree of eternal life in this broken state because then they'll be stuck in this broken state forever. I've got to get them out of access to this other opportunity for an eternity of suffering. So he took them out of the garden. It wasn't a punishment. It was like, hey, it would be as bad as this is. It would be really bad if this was permanent. And the second thing he did was clothe them. He covered their nakedness, which represented their shame, which represented their brokenness. They fully felt in that moment, whatever the fall may represent, whether it's literal or not, they fully felt what it was like to be disconnected from the pure, true, good source of God's love. Broken relationship. They felt it. And what did God come and do and say? He came beside them, lovingly, covered over that brokenness in a way. And God has been working to heal that brokenness ever since. Like the Old Testament, in a sense, symbolically, was just God kind of dealing with that brokenness in a way of kind of covering it over, not truly resolving it. It's interesting to me, because I was taught this in my Christian theology too, that the Holy Spirit could not dwell within us until Jesus died on the cross, until the transaction was made. But actually, you see the Holy Spirit fully falling on people in the Old Testament too. And you see people like David and Moses who really had, I think, what looks like an indwelling of God. They had this connection to God. I think what we have in this story of religion, in the story of the Judeo-Christian religion especially, is like God walking us back over the history of humanity to this place where we were ready to understand that we could have a deeper connection through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was never not in us, I believe. And I, I do believe that. It's that we weren't connected. It's a disconnection. It's not a removal. Like, if God is the life in all things, which is what Scripture says, in God we move and breathe and have our being. If God is actually the life in us that allows us to be alive, then how can God remove what, that very thing that makes us alive? Like he, God was never removed from us in a literal sense. But in a figurative, in a figurative sense... We experience a disconnection from the experience of, of relationship, of being in relationship with God. And that did create our brokenness. It's a disconnection, not a removal, that created the problem. God did not 
go away when we fell. God did not say, I'm done with you. I'm gone. Where's this heaven place somewhere up there? I'm going to go there and I'm just going to like sit up there and I'm going to create a way for you to get back to me. But I'm not here anymore. I'm kind of just, bleh, I don't want to be there. This icky place. No, Emmanuel, God with us, the story of Jesus is God saying, no, I really am here with you. It's okay. I will walk in the mess. Like one of the greatest criticisms of Jesus by the religious authorities who were all about a purity cult was you don't remove yourself from sinners. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. Because that's the story of God. God doesn't remove himself from sinners either. That's the whole point. I came to correct this wrong thinking, this idea of this broken relationship. Like your brokenness and your broken idea of relationship that God would remove himself. He's like, no, I. if sick people need a doctor, damn it, I'm that doctor. I'm going to the sick people. That's God's heart. God's heart is not, mm, you're sick. I don't want to be around sick people. Pfft, see you later. Jesus came to correct that, that very idea that God was removed and didn't want to be around, quote, sinners, the bad people, the wrong people. The Pharisees didn't get it, of course. And so Jesus said, what? What did he say to them? He said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are coming in the kingdom before you. Why? Because they get it. Because they understand that God is available. You, he actually said, you have cut yourselves off from God and everybody else through the way you think about God. Because you think God is removed. And so you've cr created this image of a removed God. And you've made all these hoops to jump through that are supposed to get you back to God. But God was never removed to begin with. And that whole system which makes people think God is removed is the problem. Because as soon as you say it's a work to get God to, to, be, to come back to us, what have you done? You've grounded yourself in a system. You work to get God back and you have to work to keep God here. That whole system is broken. It's, it's a desperate dance of performing and being good enough to get God back to you and to keep God with you. It's exhausting. And that's what Jesus said. He's like, you lay heavy burdens on people's backs because you've imagined that this is how God is. But I, I'm here to tell you, the most desperate, broken, sinful people, the people I'm running to, because without me, without God coming to them, they'll never, they'll never get out of that state. The brokenness that was created through the disconnection can only be healed by connection. And only God can reconnect. And God was never disconnected to begin with. It's, it's us who need to reconnect with God in a way that shows us God was never not here to begin with. The reason that Jesus in Isaiah was depicted as a man of sorrows who takes on the suffering of our sinfulness is because Jesus chooses to walk with broken people and hurting people and to be hurt in that exchange in order to walk hurting broken people back to health and healing. It takes suffering to do that. So Jesus did it. And he then he said, if you're one of my followers, you need to do the same thing for others. Walk with the broken. Be hurt. Suffer. Suffer like I suffered. Take up your cross. Be crucified with me means suffer the way that I suffer by loving broken people by being with 
hurting people by being love and wholeness and healing in the midst of hurting broken people. The way of suffering is the only way this works. That's why Jesus calls us to suffering. But he calls us to live out of the strength that he has in, in God to bear up under that suffering in a way that is actually joyful. Like, Jesus doesn't say it's going to really suck. You gotta, you're going to suffer and it's going to suck. He says, no, you're going to suffer, but it's going to be joyful. He's like, consider it all joy. That Paul writes, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer for the sake of Christ. <laughs> when you suffer the way that Christ suffers, it's actually joyful because you are getting healed because Christ is willing to walk with you you in your brokenness and suffer. And then that process heals you. And so as you become healed, you also are able to walk with other broken people and see them healed. And the process repeats over and over and over through relationship, through dis what Jesus called discipleship, which is like mentorship. Healing, people being healed by God, walking with other broken people who then see how it's possible to be healed by God. That's the joy of the suffering when we're talking about the kind of suffering that Jesus himself lives in and invites us to live out of as well. <laughs> what about this broken body? Um, I'm running out of time. I need to wrap it up soon. But I wanted to end with this. There's this poem by Thomas, Thomas Merton. It's pretty good. Um, there it is. I love this poem, this idea, like this idea that we're called into suffering. But it's actually the process of healing because Jesus chose to suffer our brokenness, to walk with us, to heal us, and so he calls us to do the same. Like, there's this poem by Thomas Merton. Or it's a, it's this. I don't really have the poem reference or anything. I know it's Thomas Burton. A friend of mine posted it a few months ago and posted it again. And I was like, oh, I, I wanted to read this poem. This is Thomas Merton. I don't know where it comes from and I apologize. I don't have my sources, but Thomas Merton. As long as we are on the earth, the love that unites us will bring us suffering by our very contact with one another. Because this love is the resetting of a body of broken bones. There are two things which men can do about the pain of disunion with other men. They can love or they can hate. Hatred recoils from the sacrifice and the sorrow that are the price of this resetting of bones. It refuses the pain of reunion. Hatred tries to cure disunion by annihilating those who are not united with us. It seeks peace by the elimination of everybody else but ourselves. But love, by its acceptance of the pain of reunion, begins to heal all wounds. Oh, man. It's the price of this resetting of bones. The resetting of a body of broken bones. Humanity is a body of broken bones. And how do those bones get reset and healed? Do you understand? Do you see that God, in order to reset us, our brokenness, we are those broken bones, God chooses to suffer 
to walk with us in our brokenness and to experience wholeheartedly that brokenness with us, to not recoil out of hatred of the brokenness, but in love for us to be broken with us in order to heal us. That is the cross. That is the message of Jesus on the cross. That is the message of Jesus' body and blood being broken and poured out. That Jesus, that God, would be broken in order to heal us and make us whole. And that then we are called into Christ to be like Christ, to do the same. And as Merton points out, we can hate the disunion. We can hate the brokenness. And we can hate the fact that hurting people hurt us. But all we do in that action is hate the brokenness and participate in the brokenness and do nothing about it and continue to be broken ourselves. It is only when we begin to be healed by the love and relationship of God who does not separate from us and our brokenness that we can begin to also do the same for others. If we imagine that God removes him and herself from our brokenness and somehow still has a way of healing us, and what, then we think we got to remove ourselves from other broken people. And yet, the very remedy to the brokenness is the fact that God does not remove himself from us. Nor does he call us to remove ourselves from others. It, what can heal broken relationships? Separation? Disunity? Hatred? Calling people sinners? Telling people they're broken and they're bad? Does that heal people? Is that what he, does God say you're terrible and I don't I don't want nothing to do with you be healed or did God come down an example of Jesus and say I'm going to I'm going to enter the mess and I'm going to be in it with you and I'm going to walk in it with you and I'm going to get broken in the midst of it and that's okay cuz I can handle it because I'm a whole person. I'm a healed person. I'm a healthy person. I'm perfect love, and perfect love can handle it. And when you get in contact with perfect love, you can handle it too. The remedy to this brokenness of broken relationships is, ne is never breaking them more. It's not separation. It's not the church and its holy bunker saying, the world is so sinful and we want to get the heck out of here. And I can't stand to be around those people. Because God loves me, darn it. And he doesn't love you. And I don't want to be around people that aren't like me. Separation and brokenness cannot heal the brokenness that has separated us. And thankfully, God does not participate in that dysfunctional idea of healing, which isn't healing at all, but God chooses to walk with us. And Jesus, on the cross is the very example of a God who is broken for the sake of walking with broken people who suffers. <sighs> what a Christmas message. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know, it just sounds so different, doesn't it? But doesn't it sound so much better? God's mad at you, Jesus. He punished Jesus and you're, uh, instead of you. And that's the gospel story of restoration a broken rule a petty God literal blood and flesh that needed to be punished by God's wrath does, does that sound good 
No. No, that doesn't... When we really understand sin is broken relationship, then we can understand perfectly and easily what heals broken relationships. Not more breaking. People who can walk with broken people in love. In the love of, of a God who also walks with broken people. And that's how we have been healed. And that's how others will be healed as well. And that's the gospel story. And that's the meaning of the message of the cross. Amen. Ah, such a different message, isn't it? When you don't understand the gospel in terms of relationship, broken relationship, healing relationship, you don't really understand it correctly. Relationship is central. It's the key. Right? God created us, created this whole thing about, so in order to be in relationship with us, that's what it's all about. So many times we get lost in the details and the transaction and of religion and how religion has reformed all this in a wrong way to reform the image of God as this person who just cares about his rules and appeasing his rules and broken rules and blood, the blood sacrifice which can only remedy and fix and pay the punishment for broken rules. No, no, that's not the story at all. There's no relationship. It's not in that. There's no this relationship. Isn't the center? Not relationship with God. It's really relationship to rules. God didn't create us for rules. Jesus said, I, "God did not make man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man." <laughs> it's not about the rules. The rules are actually just good principles to guide us back to healthy relationship. God's not mad because you broke His relationship rules. God is deeply grieved at our brokenness because it hurts God too. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's why Jesus and God allow for this broken body to be broken for the purpose of bringing about our healing. That's what the cross and that's what communion represent. It's not physical and it's not literal. It's a metaphor of the true reality of the spirit which is with us. And the spirit which is available to us. The spirit which is the very life in us. And the spirit with which we need to get reconnected in order to see past the illusion of this brokenness to the reality that God walks with us and can walk us back to wholeness again. Amen. Whew. Thanks, guys, for paying attention and for listening. I hope this encourages you, even if it challenges you, even if it sounds very foreign to the kind of gospel you've been taught. Think about it. This has been the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, J. Randall Ori. You can find more content at www.moderncontemplative.com. You'll also find podcast from my other venture called the modern contemplative so take a listen i'm in the i'm in the middle of a eight-part series called the practice of stillness that's there i just posted the second part last wednesday i post every wednesday for the modern contemplative so check that out as well i love you guys i hope for you and i want for you that kind of healing too amen all right see you guys bye